You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Peter Sanderson, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. My name is Curtis, and I want to thank everybody who's been reaching out to me in the last couple of months asking, where's the podcast? How come there hasn't been any episodes? And and just checking up on me, I do appreciate every single one of your comments. Uh, it's just been a really busy time. Work for me has uh, just exploded, and then that means that the luxury stuff, the stuff that I do on the side for fun, like this podcast, unfortunately just have to take a back seat. But uh, things seem to be calming down a little bit now, so I'm hoping to get back into the regular swing of things, starting with this interview that I have today with writer Peter Sanderson. And Peter Sanderson has been a what was a writer for Marvel uh, for a number of years and uh, worked very hard on uh, the the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and Marvel Saga. And Peter calls himself a historian, and he has a incredible knowledge, deep-rooted uh, history, um, with the, his love for Marvel comics, and it just he just knows so much. So he was a perfect candidate to write a lot of the entries in the handbook. So we're going to talk to him about his work on those titles, and a little bit about his history of getting into comics as well. But just before we dive into that, I just want to make a mention about our social media, of course. If you're just listening to us for the first time here, you can join us on Facebook. Look up Epic Marvel Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also join my Epic Collection Facebook group where we just talk about the Epic Collections that Marvel has been putting out and, uh, and have a great conversation about talking about old Marvel comics. I also have a YouTube channel, and I haven't been too active on that as well for the same reasons as I mentioned earlier about the podcast, but I hope to start putting more regular content on there so you can subscribe to that channel. Just look up Epic Marvel Podcast on YouTube. Okay, that's enough of the introduction. Let's move on over to this interview with Peter Sanderson. Okay, Peter, I'm here to talk to you today about the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Now, I got into comics kind of in the in the early 90s. And for me, uh, I got a lot of my knowledge from those old trading cards. The, the official handbook for the Marvel Universe is for people from uh, who grew up in the 80s, kind of, I, I guess. Just an encyclopedia of all of that knowledge. And you had a, a hand in this. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe? Well, it is interesting that you should start because the handbook actually began as a set of trading cards. Um, Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, wanted to do a set of cards about Marvel characters that would, that would be like a Facebook card. They'd have pictures of the characters and you'd have statistics about them, how strong they were, things like that. And he took the idea to Mark Grunewald and it was Mark who decided, uh, an editor there, and it was Mark who we could trick her idea into the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which was basically an encyclopedia of the Marvel Universe. Right. Um, now, Mark did the, pretty much, the, Mark wrote the first issue by himself, but he brought me in early on to do the, uh, the first issue of the Marvel Universe handbook was a series of comic books, and most of which were full-page entries on various characters. And in the back cover, there was an appendix with brief, one-paragraph um, descriptions of other characters who were, when the first issue were other characters whose names began with A. Right. And first brought me in to do one of the appendices, and... Then I moved on to stuff to write full page entries for characters, 
And as we went along, I was probably writing as much or as near as much as Mark was wow. in the first bit of the handbook. And I moved on to the second bit of the handbook, the so-called deluxe edition. By that point, I was writing more entries than anything else. Wow. So how did you get to be uh, the person of this vast knowledge that, uh, that, that Mark would come to you to do a project like this? Well, I had been feeding uh, comics since the mid-60s. In the late 70s, I moved to New York to attend graduate school at Columbia University. And at some point, I met, uh, I started meeting people who worked at Marvel Comics, starting with Chris Claremont. And at some point, I met Mark, Mark Grunewald, who was, had become an assistant editor at Marvel at that point, and eventually graduated to become an editor. And Mark recognized that he and I were kindred spirits in many ways. We both had this interest and knowledge of Marvel history. And even though I was in graduate school and Mark hadn't, <clears throat> hadn't pursued an academic career, he was in many ways, he had a scholarly turn of mind. And he was publishing on his own a fanzine called Omniverse. He had an, uh, this interest in the way that time travel and alternate dimensions worked in DC and Marvel comics. And that's what Omniverse was about. Nice. And first he brought me on board as to contribute to Omniverse, and he made me the assistant editor on, on Omniverse. Okay. That went well. We, we were friends by this point. And um, when Mark started working on the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, he pretty much, I, I think he wrote the entire issue by himself. Maybe he had a little help, but he basically was the author of the first issue. Now, each issue of the original Marvel Universe handbook was, um, most of it was full page entries about particular characters. And then on the inside back cover, there was what was called the appendix, where you had shorter one-paragraph entries about other characters. So in the first issue, which was characters whose names began with A, the appendix would also be characters whose names began with A. Right. Mark first brought me in to do one of the appendices, I think, with the second issue. And that went well, and he started assigning me full-page entries of characters to write. And so as the series went along, I was writing pretty much as much as he was, maybe even even more, because Mark, as a full-time editor at, at Marvel, um, he was busy enough. So he was grateful to have me there because I could write the entries in a style that he, wa that he wanted, this, this sort of scholarly style. And when we, when, when we got to the second version of the Marvel Universe Handbook, the so-called deluxe edition in the mid-'80s, at that point, I was writing more entries than anybody else. That's amazing. Another thing is that uh, Mark and I were thought so much alike on these matters that um, with these deluxe version of the Marvel Universe Handbook, I would often revise and expand entries that Mark had originally written. Ah. And when I look back at these entries, I can't tell where Mark stops and I begin. <laughs> That's great. Because we're writing so much in the same style. Yeah. Well, tell me about the research process um, of having to, to do one of these entries, because you go very in-depth. How much do you um, have to play with continuity to make things fit? Or like, how much research did you have to do on characters you weren't as familiar with? Um, those kind of questions. Well, basically, I... I asked for characters okay. to write about. So I wasn't going to pick a character that I wasn't familiar with. Oh, I see. And actually, I, you know, at that point, I was pretty much reading every Marvel comic anyway, but I picked characters. I asked to write about characters that I, that I particularly liked. Right. So, for example, I was a big, a big fan of Chris Claremont's X-Men, so I asked for a lot of X-Men characters. The research, well... I had been, as I said, I'd been reading Marvel comics since the mid '60s, so really, I pretty much read every Marvel superhero comic that had been published be, between 1961 and uh, 1981 when I when I was working on the handbook, and of course, I had I had a considerable collection in my apartment, and 
Also, Marvel had a bound volume room. Now, the bound volume room was notoriously incomplete. Okay. Because over the years, there had been people who had made off with some of the bound volumes. No, no. DC Comics handled this. Now, I hope that I'm thinking that I don't know about how what Marvel's library is like today. But I do know that in my last years and working at the Marvel offices, that's when they were starting to digitize comics. Right. And so I, so I expect that um, Marvel has a huge library now in digital form. Well, yeah. Like, you know, like every new comic that comes out, there's a digital version on Comixology, but they also go back and digitize comics from the past to, right. to sell in digital form, even even stuff from the 40s and the 50s. Yeah, I have it all on my phone through Marvel Unlimited. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, and DC, on the other hand, I also was working on the on the who's who in the DC, the original who's who in the DC universe right. in the early 80s, and DC had a much, much superior library. For every series, they had uh, like Two bound volumes for every year of that series up through 1948 or so. And after that, they had three bound volumes for every year of every series. Wow. And they had very little theft. Wow. So what is, what is it like to go to that library? You have to, like, sign in? Well, they're not open to the general public. Right. I understand that for sure. I was only allowed in the uh, DC library because I was working on the Who's Who. Originally, I was uh, hired at DC uh, when they were getting ready to do uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right. They were also planning to do like, what became the uh, two-issue history of the DC universe. And so Marv Wolfman and Len Wein hired me to read through the entire DC library and take notes. <laughs> oh, what a job. <laughs> so I said, okay. Yeah. And... I I, originally, I thought this was only going to take three months with me coming in twice a week, which was stupid, really. <laughs> I, remember, I remember Paul Levitz was upset that, that I was, go, that I was uh, taking longer than they, they originally expected. But it ended up to I, me going in three times a week for a year. Wow. I did read through everything. Really? <laughs> but everything that was... Everything that was DC Universe related. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'd glance at the funny animal comics from the forties, but, but you know, I I didn't have to take notes on those. Right. Oh man. Up to the extent that they were tied into the more Thomas's Captain Carrot series. Oh right. Oh man, what a job. So uh, no, no, the guy, Benjamin Leclerc, who runs the DC library now out in Burbank. He he's apparently doing a really good job. I'm. Fr- friends with him on Facebook, and I'm very impressed with what, what what he's posted about in terms of running the DC library. The Marvel library, similarly, uh, that's a, that's not open to the public. That's just for people who work there right. at Marvel. And as I say, and, uh, I have no idea what it's like, well, it's like now, whether they've gone back and tried to fix of uh, comics that they didn't have about, in the, about volume copies of or whatever. But that, I'm describing the way it was in the early 80s. Right, right. If I didn't remember things from from Marvel stories, and of course I remembered a whole lot, or I didn't have those particular comics at home, I could look them up in the uh, in the bound volume room if they had some. Also, um, when I was writing entries on characters, I liked to consult with the pe- writers who were actually writing those characters at that time. So I talked to Chris Claremont about X-Men characters. I talked to Frank Miller about Daredevil characters. That's great. I can't remember off the top of my head who else I talked to, but you know, I, whether, I don't remember whether, for example, I asked Walt Simonson about characters and thought what I might have. Now, did you, do you have an example of a time when an entry um, gave you uh, some difficulties, like you couldn't uh, come up with the... Uh, the entry is as the way you wanted it to, or um, you had difficulties trying to put piece together histories or anything. I don't think any of them ever gave me difficulty, but I should go back to something else that you asked about, okay. which was uh, you suggested. Um, and sometimes in writing entries, we had to fill in gaps or we had to resolve contradictions. Okay. So that this was a little this was a little controversial. There were there were comics pros who didn't like the idea that we were. Setting down, you know, uh, we were specifying, for example, how strong a particular character was. Right. Um, but I think the idea was that we wanted to make 
that Mark wanted to make clear that, say, Spider-Man was nowhere nearly as strong as Thor, for example. <laughs> right, yeah, of course. That makes sense. And so, and so you came, came up with uh, various strength levels. Yeah. And the top strength level was class 100, and that's where Thor and the Hulk was, except that we eventually uh, modified the Hulk because the Hulk, the stronger, he, the, the madder he gets, the stronger he gets. Right. So the Hulk is so potentially unlimited. So, uh, you know, uh, the answer is, you know, we would specify how, t- how tall a character was, how much the character weighed. Uh, so we'd fill, fill in information like that. And in some cases, uh, like if there were gaps in a character's history that hadn't been filled in with the comics, sometimes we would fill them in. For example, with the Subterraneans entry, I remember I, I wrote that one and I came up with... Uh, came up with the history of the subterraneans and their division into something three or four separate races just uh, building on the evidence that was in the com- that had been in the published comics so i came up with the name of the molians for the subterraneans who worked for the mole man and the tyranoids for the subterraneans who worked for tyrannus i added uh the race of the character called grotesque from the x-men and the Lava Men from the Avengers of Thor, and wove them all together. Oh, uh, another case of case that comes to mind of my filling in gaps is that I, uh, I for the entries for Mister Fantastic and Professor Z- Professor X, I uh, filled in with, with I don't know, did I? I think Mark might have run the Mister Fantastic one, but I definitely did Professor X. I remember that uh, Professor X, uh, what one of the schools he went to when he was growing up was Columbia University because I went to Columbia University. Ah, <laughs> nice. But I remember for um, with the Red Skull entry, this was probably for the deluxe edition because we the Red Skull as calls history got several pages in the deluxe edition. There was a problem in Marvel history in that. Stanley and Jack Kirby had done a story in which they showed uh, Captain America and the Red Skull fighting it out during the Allied invasion of Berlin. And uh, the, the bombs dropped and Cap and the Skull are separated. The Skull is seemingly, seemingly killed, but you know he's, he's revived by AIM in the modern era. Right. But we also have the story in Avengers 4 about how before the end of the war in Europe, Bucky and Captain America and Bucky were fighting Baron Zemo, yeah. and Zemo launches this drone plane, and Cap and Bucky climb on board, and the plane explodes, and Bucky is seemingly killed, and Cap is dumped into the water, and freezes, goes into suspended animation. Yes, right. So how do we reconcile the two <laughs> Exactly, things? yeah. So I, I was the one who reconciled them, and basically it's like uh, Cap is Cap is uh, yes he's at the fall of Berlin, but then but then he uh, he's informed that Baron Zemo is often off in England trying to steal this drone plane for some reason, <laughs> and so yeah he, he 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 quickly flies to to England to to stop Zemo, and that's what Cap ends up in the drink. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to make sense of the fact that you know that Stan and Jack did these two stories that seem to contradict each other. And do you get a good sense of satisfaction when you come up with a good solution like that? Yes, I did. Good. <laughs> and Mark, and, and uh, it's not like I was, uh, you know, it's like I I'd come up with things like that, and but but of course it has to be approved by Mark. And I only did these things like filling in gaps for characters for. When these were characters that were under Mark's editorial bailiwick, okay. So, like the subterranean, subterraneans, or um, or the Red Skull, for that matter, because Mark was in charge of Captain America, uh, and of course, and Jim Shooter would read would read every issue before it went out. So it's not like I was like, you know, people had to approve anything I did like that. Also, um, as I said, uh, with. With many characters, I would consult with the writer who was writing those characters at the time. And uh, back then, back then it was uh, it was sort of different. Back then, I think now at, at Marvel, it's uh, the editors are considered are more in charge. But back then, the writers 
riders often had more leeway. And so everyone was pretty much deferred to Chris Claremont on the X-Men. Right. So like I, I talked to Chris about the X-Men entries. And so sometimes he'd give me elements of backstory that he had figured out and would just put them into the entry. Okay. Or the same to an extent with Frank. Frank. When I was talking to Frank about the Kingpin entry, he's, he told me that he re- regarded the Kingpin as being like a sumo wrestler. Ah. That that wasn't fat, that was sheer muscle. Right. And so I put that in the entry. That's great that they um, had all that input as well, because they, the writers especially have these ideas that they pro- might not even have put on the printed page, and you get to fold that into continuity. Now, now, when, now whether this is true of Marvel Universe Handbook Rise, I mean, there's still Marvel Universe Handbook type books that come out from time to time from Marvel, right. and there's this whole staff uh, scattered around the world who uh, work on these things, and it's... Uh, and no, I haven't been asked to work on these things for years. Oh. And I'm not exactly sure why. <laughs> no kidding. But I'm, you know, Facebook friends with a number of the people who do the hand, they had books uh, in recent years. They all, you know, think highly. They all are very nice to, they all think highly of Mark and they're always nice and respectful to me, me and my work. Let's talk a little bit about the buildings and weapons and vehicles, the ones with those schematics. Uh, did you have to write any of those entries as well? Um, no, not really. Those The schematics for weapons and such were left to Elliot Brown. Okay. Although for the uh, deluxe handbook, Mark would sometimes ask me to go through what Elliot Elliot's descriptions and um, make them say easier for for non techie people to understand. Okay, so he he went pretty heavy into the the nitty grittiness of yeah. All he of would that. draw. He would he would yeah. He would draw those the specification. He would draw weapons and other and various gadgets and things like that. Right. Yeah, I know he did that kind of stuff for annual bonus features and and that kind of thing too. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Now you were telling me about the uh, the subterraneans just a second ago, and I remember that story um, in the Avengers annuals. I think in the nineties that you did that just laid out the whole history of these of all of these different factions and stuff. And I just found found that so helpful uh, to understand where they all came from and and how they related to each other or who's at war with whom and all this kind of stuff. Well, that that started with my entry for Marvel for the Marvel Universe handbook on exactly. the subterraneans. It's perfect. Yeah, I, I I I was always it didn't happen too often, but I was always pleased when something I came up with for the handbook ended up being put in a story. <laughs> well, in that one, you got the opportunity to make the story yourself, so that's kind of cool. Um, that that was you, right? Doing that annual the annual story. I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't remember doing that, but it could, but it could be that's you know because that's. Uh, nearly 40 years ago now I know, right? that I was working on the original handbook. Yeah. And so, uh, well, just you may have seen my post just the other, I've been going through a lot of my collection here. Just the other day I came across, I said, why do I have like 10 copies of this co- comic called Avengers Log, which is another handbook style comic. And then I looked on the inside front cover and said, oh, I wrote this. <laughs> there you go, right on. So you had a hand in Marvel Saga as well, right? Oh, I wrote Marvel Saga. Yeah, can you tell me about that? I've read through the first um, volume of the Essential Marvel Saga, the co- the collection that's uh, that printed it all in black and white, and I just love it. Um, can you yeah. tell me the origin of how you got to uh, to to write this book? I don't remember too much about the or about how the concept of Marvel Saga came about, but I know I got to write it because. Marvel editorial at that point recognized I'm the historian. Yeah, that's great. And Danny Fingeroth was uh, was the editor on the project, and we do a lot of plotting plotting sessions in effect at Danny's apartment. And I'm not sure about Marvel Saga. I have I have some mixed feelings because the idea was that we it was um, you know trying to. Uh, Tell the story, uh, the modern Marvel universe from Fantastic Four number one onward. Mm-hmm. And what we did was, for the most part, we used panels from the original stories. Right. And, well, one problem, problem I have with it now in retrospect is that sometimes to make a good picture, 
we would have to make adjustments on the art, like extend the art, for example. Right. Now I will say, well, it's sort of arrogant to try to try to uh, alter Jack Kirby's work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I can see that. We didn't do too much of that. But the th- part about Mao Saga I enjoyed most was when we actually got to commission new art. The first issue, for example, begins with, like, I think it's a four-page sequence where I'm saying, well, what were all these Marvel characters doing? Where were they at the time of Fantastic Four number one? Yeah. And so we had new art commission to do that. And in a way, I sort of wish that with... Part of me wishes that we had done all of Marvel's saga that way, that we had just commissioned new art for everything. I think it would have been a better-looking book. Right, a little bit more cohesive. Uh, said, you know, these pages that are basically, like, mostly white with text, uh, in, text in between panels from different stories. But I don't know. I mean, who, who could we have gotten to draw the art who could capture the early Silver Age style of, of artwork and, um, and would be willing to do it issue after issue after issue. Oh, like Ron Friends, probably. Ron Friends, I think Ron Friends is the one who did the, for the uh, opening pages for the first issue. But I don't, I don't know whether, you know, he's busy no, with other books, right. too. <laughs> it was him, you're right. So I don't know, but I did enjoy working on Marvel Saga. And now the question there was, trying to put all of these stories early Silver Age stories, stories from the early 60s, into chronological order. Yeah, that's the most fascinating thing about this book. I can just imagine you had like a one of those, in, you see in the movie, uh, the detective with the board and all of the strings going in different directions, uh, <laughs> trying to piece it all together. You're close. Oh, yeah? Now, uh, obviously, the main, the main source of chronology is when they were published. Yes. But you come up with problems. For example... Stan Lee and Jack Kirby would, in Thor, would do like, there might be a run of 12 issues where each one begins right after one. Right, yeah. So where does that fit into the overall chronology? Now, um, there's a guy named George Olszewski who wrote and published these Marvel, these indexes to Marvel series. First he did it on his own, and then Marvel hired him to, to do it for, do official Marvel versions. Okay. And he began working out chronologies, what stories happened after. If he's indexing an issue of Avengers and he lists the, the characters who are in it, he'll say, if he gets a Thor, he'll say, this, hap- this happens between is- these issues of Thor. He has this Avengers, Avengers adventure, for example. Right. So he was a help too, but sometimes, sometimes I had to figure the, the chronology out myself. And what I ended up doing was coming up with sort of a calendar Okay. And each day on the calendar, you know, like 1965, say, and for each day of the calendar, figuring out which Marvel stories would have happened on which day. Amazing. (laughs) Now, I don't know if this, maybe this would only have worked, this probably only would have worked with stories from the 60s because Marvel wasn't publishing that many books back then. Right, yeah. And also, uh, also, the way Marvel time works, I mean, it's like Peter Parker was like 15 in Amazing Fantasy number 15. Yep. And how old is he now? Is it 10 years later? Is it 15 years later in right. Marvel time? With every additional year that Marvel publishes these superhero stories, we're compressing more and more stories into the chronology of the characters who age very slowly, if at all. Oh, yeah. Marvel keeps doing serious... Six feet is over thirty. Yeah, but but you know it's like yeah. Reed and Sue now have what teenage children. Yeah, well, I was going to make that point too. Yeah, exactly. Franklin is a teenager now. Um, he's as old as Peter was when he when when Peter first started, <laughs> but Peter's only aged what fifteen years or something. And and I think and sometimes I think it's it's worse over DC where. Okay, according to Batman Year One, although I guess that's not canonical anymore. <laughs> um, right. Bruce Wayne was like 25 when he started his Batman career. That's why he stopped because he had been spending the last several years before that training all over the world. Yeah, and he's had how many versions of Robin by this time? <laughs> right, exactly. All who start with their kid, young kids. So just how old is Batman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Which is especially prone because if you look at the world of athletes, of professional athletes, usually they retire before they hit 40. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so in real life, if there's a Batman in real life, I mean, how long can he actually function? Because he has to be at, the, at a physical peak. That's right. In order to do the things he does. Well, that's always the fun of these, like the the handbooks and Marvel Saga. It's like trying to uh, reconcile the fantasy with the reality. And one thing I really like about the handbooks is that because you think about those kind of things, all of these characters come off more as real people. Like these are not just yes. fictional people anymore. Like they, they are actual people in the real world that I could get to know and that kind of thing. And I appreciate that. Also, another problem if you were trying to do a a Marvel saga today is uh, that Marvel keeps doing these sto- like these untold stories from the from the Silver Age. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so you'd have to fit those into any any sort of Marvel saga type chronology. Even so, I mean, there's also part of me that wishes that Marvel would decide to do Marvel saga again and hire me to do it. But <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, I, no, I was hoping, I was hoping that Marvel saga would would just keep going and going and going, but. The f- sales fell off as time went on, yeah. and they switched editors on me to for the last several issues, and we finally were given an end date. So I decided. So I, we decided that uh, what we'd do is we would end with the Galactus trilogy. We thought that would be a good end point. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Wow. Did you read any of um, Mark Wade's History of the Marvel Universe miniseries that came out recently? Yes, I did. Yeah, what did you think and, about that? And I'm afraid, and I'm afraid once again, I was, I sort of felt disappointed that no one even, no one asked me to at least be a consultant on this thing. Yeah, I thought of you when I was reading it. Well, Mark has a has a voluminous knowledge of Marvel history. Yeah, and a lot of the people who do the current Marvel Universe handbooks were, were helped him out on this. But again, I was sort of like I sort of felt forgotten yeah. because they hadn't even asked me to help. But I thought they did a good job. Um, I do admit that I I haven't been sent you know freebies of Marvel Comics in decades. You know there are aspects of Marvel history that I don't that more recent Marvel history that I'm not all that familiar with. Right. So it was good to see where these things fit in, and I especially liked the first issue, which was. This was something I wish we had been done with the original Marvel saga. Uh, the first issue was all devoted to things that happened <coughs> before Fantastic Four number one, going all the way back to the Big Bang. Right, yeah, and all the celestial stuff. And... Nobody had pieced together a chronology for all those events, you know, in prehist- prehistoric times and ancient history. No. No one had done that before, so I was very impressed and excited by that. That was yeah, that was pretty. Cool. The later issues were less interesting to me because they were uh, recounting things in Marvel history that I already knew. Although you know, to, as we got towards the the final issues, which was covering more recent events, again I'm less familiar with a lot of that stuff. So that was interesting to see uh, for me. But um, I'm glad they did it. I was a, it's sort of like a series that was written for people like me. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm the sort of person who's interested in this sort of thing. Yeah, I ate it up too. I thought it was fantastic. And, of course, it's all new art. Yeah. No, and yeah, man, that artwork was just fantastic too. The way laid, very creative, laid it up really nicely. And also, this is something I really admired that Mark did. It's like this is his version of trying to straighten out uh, continuity problems while writing a, a history of Marvel, <clears throat> because you know there's some Reed and Reed Richards and Ben Grimm uh, was supposedly were you know in World War Two and uh, the Punisher was in Vietnam and you know as as Marvel t- as time mo- moves on you know yeah. uh, but but the characters don't age much. You can't tie them to those real-world events like that. Reed and Ben would have to be like over 100 years old if they were World War II veterans. Right. I noticed that Mark came up Mark came up with this fictional war in Asia. Right. And I don't recall if he said that's the one that Reed and Ben were in, but it's definitely the one that he put the Punisher in that war. He, you know, that's the war that Tony's, where Tony Stark had his injury to his heart. And so I thought that was a I thought that was a brilliant maneuver to yeah. come up with this fictional war in Asia, 
they're not tied down to any specific re- real-time event. Yeah, it, and it's just like a decades-long war that's just kind of constantly all going on all the time. And anyone can slip in and out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite brilliant. Um, okay, so let's go back to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe for a second here. Is there an entry that you are uh, particularly proud of and why? Um, other than Subterraneans. Well, <laughs> uh, Subterraneans, it's also the Red, the Red Skull and Professor X come to mind because they, in the, well, in the deluxe version of the handbook, where I was, um, I, I got to do the entries that were several pages long. It was just, I was just proud of being able to to recount, chronicle, and knit together all of these different aspects of their, these characters' long histories. Right. And Professor X's case, that was uh, the deluxe version. I was expanding an entry that I had written originally. I don't recall whether I wrote the original Red Skull handbook, entry in the original handbook, but I definitely wrote, the, wrote it in the deluxe version, which would mean that I would have been expanding on Mark's entry. Considerably because it was several pages long. But yeah, the, the long ent- the long entries where I had I get to put in so many reference to so many different stories and knit them into a chronology. Uh that those are the ones I'm most proud of, yeah. Were you asked to be a part of any of the licensed characters' handbooks, like the Transformers or Conan or G.I. Joe? No. No, it didn't no. have a hand in those ones. Just Marvel characters. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, I got to do that blog thing. I got to do the Wolverine saga. Right. Now, if Marvel came to you today and said, we would love to do something like this again, um, and it was all up to you from like the ground up, would you do it exactly the same as this or would you do it differently? I guess I would do it the sa- same way. I think it's very unlikely that they would ask me to do this. Oh, I know. That's just the fantasy here. <laughs> I know the internet kind of ruins the... Right. Well, 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 for various reasons. One is that, that uh, well, Marvel, you know, there's a um, documentary on, that just started on Disney Plus last Friday called Behind the Mask about Marvel, and I'm in it. Nice. So occasionally, Marvel invites me, invites me to, screen, to preview screenings of the... Um, big marvel movies so it's like uh occasionally marvel reaches out to me but they they don't reach out to me to do to do actual work for them anymore and it is true i'm retirement age and they do have they have built like i say this sort of network of marvel universe writers over the years and so when they do a project like when they do some sort of Marvel Universe type project, they assign it to these guys. I don't think Marvel has done a full a full length handbook, you know, m- multiple issues, in quite some time. I think it's more more like one issue here and there. I mean, people, the people, some couple of people who work on the more recent handbook type projects tell me, you know, it's it's something that they. You know, they have day jobs, and it's something they do in their spare time because they can't make. Whereas I was able to make a living with the amount of work Mark was giving me on these projects back then, uh, these guys don't don't get enough enough work to to make a living off that by any means. Um, also, as as time, well, in the in the nineties, I sort of moved. I moved from doing things like the Who's Who and the Marvel Universe Handbook to doing books about um, hardcover books about Marvel characters in history for. Outside publishers who would get like who would license the rights to do such books for Marvel, right? And books like that, books like that, I think to an extent, you know, it's been an actual Marvel encyclopedia. For example, there have been books that have Marvel timelines, timelines of Marvel history. And again, I, I was doing a lot of this stuff in the nineties, and then in the twenty-first century, they start they, for reasons unknown. We're getting other people to do these books, so um, to a extent, those have taken the place of the original handbook, and also Wikipedia. Yeah, of course. And various, and various fan sites. For my own research these days, I draw a lot on internet sites, and a lot of these people. Uh, I, when I read these entries, even the Wikipedia entries, I think that well, these are like the descendants of the Marvel Universe handbook entries. Yeah, that's very true. In fact, there are some websites, some websites that are basically just unofficially reprinting old Marvel Universe handbook entries, or they're clearly doing them 
they are actually the style of the old Marvel Universe yeah, handbook. Definitely. Well, I'm sure it has been a great inspiration for many people, especially as, as people, as the internet rose and people could have their own websites. Uh, I remember making my own website, uh, you know, 20 years ago and stuff and um, trying to do something similar with the handbook, you know, putting my favorite characters and information about them. It's like this kind of stuff has impacted um, a lot of people over the years, all the stuff that you did here. Oh, that's nice. It's nice to hear. Um, you know, I don't think DC does books like this anymore. Yeah, I don't think that they do either. They 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 did the Who's Who, and I worked on the original Who's Who, and I worked on a couple of the update mini Who's Who miniseries, and then they DC did the you know things like Secret Files for lots of characters, which I had nothing to do with. Oh right. And but I don't think they, I don't think they do books like this. Anymore. Oh, and, and I also noticed that on Marvel's website, they have sort of a Marvel Universe handbook section, although they don't call it that. But, well, you know, again, it's entries about the various carelessly done in Marvel Universe handbook style. Right. Oh, I also want to point out that um, they mentioned that when I was working the Marvel Universe handbook, okay, I did um, the original, worked on the original series and the deluxe series and various update issues. And then um, what what they discovered was that over the course of each series, the sales would go down in the later issues, and they were looking for ways to get around this. And so Mark experimented with doing a series where they were, uh, again, it sort of go, went back to the trading card ideas, but these were like pages that you could assemble into a loose-leaf notebook. Yeah. I do, do you remember I have, that? I have a few of those, yeah. And, and, the, and the front would be, uh, pictures of the character standing, like looking out forward and, or, and to the side, and the back would have. There wasn't much room for actual history there, but the back would have statistics and lists of key issues that the character had been in. So I worked on a lot of those, and DC did something similar. They also did a loose leaf version, hmm. and those are basically the last versions of the Who's Who and the and the Marvel handbooks that I worked on. Oh, something else to mention is that the in the original series, and this continued into the deluxe version, we ended up extending the original series to do the so-called books of Book of the Dead. Yep. Do you remember that? I do remember that, with all of the characters that had passed on. All the characters who had passed on, and because it was different back then. There were, there were characters who, when they passed on, they were meant to be stay dead permanently. Right. <laughs> so only if a character was meant to stay dead permanently would be in, he'd be in the Book of the Dead. Like if Doctor Doom, if there's like an explosion at the end of the Doctor Doom story, but they never find the body. Okay, you know Doctor Doom's not really dead. He's coming <laughs> back. But there are lots of characters who were meant to be dead for, dead for real. I remember Captain Marvel was the prominent character on the cover. Right, like... When Jean Grey died as Phoenix the first time, <laughs> the first time she was meant to be dead for real. Yeah, there was a point at which Jim Starlin killed off Thanos and meant it to be dead for real. Right, and it was sort of like, and there's sort of like everybody believed at Marvel back then that if there are two characters who would never, ever, ever, ever come back, it would be Uncle Ben and Bucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it was believed that it was believed that it was just so important, you know, first of all, to Spider-Man, yeah, that he he spent the rest of his life making up for Uncle Ben's death. And the case of Bucky was so important that Captain America felt guilt, survivor's guilt over Bucky's death. Right. But you know, virtually every character who's in the Book of the Dead has, has come, come back, back at this point. <laughs> death is virtually meaningless these days. But not Uncle Ben. I think he's still he's still dead. Not Uncle Ben. Yep. Not Uncle Ben. He's still dead. Just like you know, like like uh, Jarrell and Lara and uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne are all, all still dead. Although we've had alternate an alternate version of Thomas Wayne show up. Yes. Oh, and we've seen an alternate Uncle Ben's as well in a in a recent Spider Man storyline. Yeah, the Spider Verse. It's like virtually everybody else comes back. <laughs> That's true. Oh, Death Nazi just to me seems to be a way of boosting sales and uh, giving a giving a character a, a rest for a couple of years before they decide to bring him back. Oh yeah, it's all it's all marketing, right? Well, well, well some of it, is, some of it is I think that 
the writers and the editor at the time definitely wanted to kill the character off, and then a new writer and editor show up years later and say, "Oh, we want to back the character back." Yeah. But other times, I think it's other times. I think more often these days, it's that they decide they're going to kill the character to boost the sales with every intention of bringing him back. Oh, for sure. Just a year or two later. That's uh, the whole death of Superman kind of started that thing. Yeah, and everybody's trying to. Death of Superman was such a big deal that everybody's been trying to imitate it ever since. So yeah. it's like, uh, you know, so every so I'll, over the last several years, like I'll, uh, I'm always like there are some Marvel comics that I buy and others where I, where I, you know, look at com- comicology, which always, which you know, for every new issue they show, they allow you to sample the first three pages. Yeah. So this is one way I can keep up with keep up with what's going on in the other. Mo- in Marvel books in general. And so, you know, I'll notice that, oh, oh, look, Professor X is dead or Wolverine is dead. I wonder how long it's going to be before they come back. Oh, look, they're back. <laughs> I remember, I remember get, getting annoyed when they killed off the Watcher. And, and uh, then uh, then several months ago, Dan does a story in Fantastic Four. Oh, look, the Watcher's back. Right. So it's just a matter of, these days, it's just a matter of waiting it out, it seems. It's like, right now, I'm saying, why did they kill Alfred off in the Batman books? This this makes no sense. He's too useful a character. But it's like, so we'll see. We'll see how, how long it... I don't know. They, they tend not to try to reboot Batman's continuity too much, but we'll see what happen, happens. Sooner or later, there's... Sooner or later, somebody's going to want to bring him back. Oh, yeah. I'd be very surprised if he stayed dead forever. They'll just use the Lazarus pits or something. Lazarus pit, pit. Well, there's there's so many ways to revive characters, and it's like, uh, but you know, in the case of Alfred, he was killed off in the in the '60s when editor Julie Schwartz took over Batman, and one of the first things he did was kill off Alfred ah. because he wanted to make a new start, I guess. But then Alfred was used in the Batman TV show, so they decided to bring Alfred back in the comics, so they revealed that this mysterious villain who had been plaguing Batman for a couple of years by then, the outsider was really an amnesiac Alfred. <laughs> wow. So that's how they brought Alfred back. So who knows? Maybe it's maybe in five years somebody will will just they'll bring back they'll have a new outsider who turns out to be Alfred. Who knows? Oh yeah. I, like I said, I'd be very surprised if this of la- this lasts. There was a <laughs> there's a Marvel writer who killed off a who recently killed off a long-running character, Marvel character, who told me, oh, he had every, he, he knows that the character's going to come back, and he, even want, and he even wanted to do hints in his story about how the character could come back. But the editor told him, no, no, just leave it to the next writer who wants to bring this particular character back. So it's, oh, okay. it's like standard operating yeah. on DC. We kill characters, and then we bring them back. Unfortunately, I think that this, weakens the power of a lot of Marvel and DC stories because, um, you know, for example, in Avengers Endgame, the fact that the characters who, who the, the members of the Avengers who are indeed dead at the end of Avengers Endgame, uh, you know they're going to stay dead. Yeah, I hope uh, so, that, at least. That gives Avengers Endgame dramatic power that the deaths of those characters wouldn't have in the comics now because you, you know in the comics that those deaths are reversible. Well, in the movies, the the characters' uh, viability is limited by the fact that uh, they're played by actors who age in real time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I've seen an interview with Robert Downey Jr. in which he said, and which he said that you know he couldn't keep playing Iron Man forever because he's getting old. He'd eventually get too old for the part. But at that point, I think you could just recast. I mean, we've had how many James Bonds over the years? People would forgive that. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, they have done some recast, a little recast. They recast um, Rhodey in the Iron Man movies. Right, yeah. But I think my, my, I got the impression that Marvel Studios would, and of course there's sort of this joke about recasting in one, Pietro in one division. Yes, that's right. But it's like, um, I think that... Um, I get the impression that Marvel Studios wants to avoid recasting at this time. Yeah, they clearly made a decision that I, you know, I don't know if I guess it's uh, assuming everybody has has seen Endgame who's listening to this podcast. Yep. Um, why they why they decide to kill off? If you listen to the right directors and writers' commentary tracks for these movies or see interviews, they talk as if. 
killing off Iron Man and Black Widow were decisions they made for the sake of story. I suspect that there was a behind-the-scenes reason that Robert Downey's and Scott Johansson's contracts had, had were coming to an end. Right. In the, Downey's case, he seems not to. Maybe the, the actors didn't want to play the parts any for longer. Maybe Marvel didn't want to pay them huge salaries to go on any further. Downey seems to have had uh, qualms about playing it as he got as he got nearer to sixty years old. I don't know if Johansson. I think could have kept on. I, I heard her say. Uh, once it should keep playing Black Widow as long as she looks good in the costume, but uh, she'll always look good in the costume. <laughs> I, think so, I think so too. But uh, I mean, I was really surprised that they killed her off. Yeah. But again, it's like the deaths. The deaths in those movies have a dramatic power that they wouldn't have in the comics these days. Because I'm always surprised by the number of fans who seem to believe in the in the deaths of characters in recent in comics over the last decade or two because they seem to fall for it over and over again. Whereas, oh, yeah. you know, I have, I've seen this happen so many times. I know that the, for the most part, these deaths are not going, are, are going to get reversed either because they're either, either the writer and editor at the time didn't mean for them to stay dead or, or because, you know, yeah, when Crisis on Infinite Earths was done, it was decree decreed that any character who dies in Crisis is going to stay dead forever. Uh. And yet, and yet, the the original version of Supergirl and the Barry Allen Flash, they not only both came back, but they st got to star in their own TV shows. <laughs> yep, that's right. Well, you know, I, uh, I we've been chatting for a, um, about an hour now, so I do appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Let's call it a day for today, but let's definitely talk again about another subject. I like to try and keep my episodes maybe focused in one area or another, but I would love to chat with you again and talk more specifically about, you know, something something else. Uh, we can figure that out, but that would be a lot of fun. Okay. Sure. Well, it's been fun talking to you. Absolutely. Absolutely.